five people here who've heard me teach on this subject before. My apologies to them. We always learn new things in the Word of God. Uh, That's one reason we know it's the Word of God, because we never get to the end of it. I suppose the greatest secular book I've ever read is War and Peace. It took me longer to read it than it took Tolstoy to write it. And there have been many critical volumes written on War and Peace, but you finally can say all you can say about Pierre and about the Rostov family and the Balkonsky family and about Tolstoy's historiography and what he's trying to get across and the Napoleon's invasion of Russia. And you get to a point where you hear the same things over and over and over and over again. It's not like that with the Word of God. I find that still... While I'm preaching, in the middle of the message, I see something critical in the text that I missed. And the reason that that happens is because this word is the product of an infinite mind, and our minds are, are, are minuscule. And we are dealing not with something static, but with something dynamic. Not with something dead, but with something that's alive. And I want you to turn to a very familiar passage of Scripture, Matthew 19. And this is is the story that in the West we call the story of the rich young ruler. We'll begin in verse 16. I'm going to call it Jesus and, and the way of salvation. And before I read the text, let me just say that there's a wonderful Bible teacher who went to heaven since since I moved to Budapest named S. Lewis Johnston. He's from Charleston. He taught for 30 years in Dallas. The last 10 years of his teaching ministry, he taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in, uh, near Chicago, Deerfield, Illinois, a wonderful, wonderful scholar of systematic theology in New Testament Greek. I once heard Dr. Johnson say that what Jesus said to the rich young ruler was the strangest Things were the strangest things that he ever said. As a matter of fact, Dr. Johnson said he had a friend who was a seminary professor. He didn't name him. He said he had a friend who was a seminary professor who said that when he came to the story of the rich young ruler in the gospel text, we see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that he would quicken his pace and try to get by it as quickly as he could is if he were walking past a graveyard. And that sounds a little irreverent. I'm just quoting from the seminary president. And basically what he meant was, this is a place I don't like to hang around. This is a place in the New Testament which makes me uncomfortable. And I don't want to linger here. I want to get, I want to get by it. Now, what I want you to do when I read the text is I want you to think about the fact that, that there There are two things in this text which are shocking. And I'm not talking about the fact that he told the young man to sell everything and give the proceeds away. That's shocking from a different reason, but I'm not going to talk about that aspect of the text. I think that should be done in a pastoral context. I'm not going to come here as a missionary visitor and say, you know, you need to be poorer than you really are. You need to make missionaries richer than they really are, so what about it? I'm leaving that aside. That's for your pastoral staff to deal with. There's one thing in the text which shocks us as Reformed Protestants. And there's another thing in the text that would have been just as shocking to a first century Jew. And I want you to see if you can identify those two things when we read these 
familiar words. Think about that, okay? Let's stand up in honor of God and his word as we begin the reading at Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16. Hear the word of God. And behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? He said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I've kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? Looking upon them, Jesus said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Heavenly Father, show us what it means through your Spirit's illumining ministry. And make it to change our lives to be less like ourselves and more like the one who was teaching that day, even Jesus, through your Spirit's power, his transforming intent. Make the Word of God to have the designed and desired impact. May it make a difference in our lives because we spent a little time worshiping you at this address this morning. For we ask it in his lovely name, who is Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Well, first of all, we see in verse 16, the great question is asked. It's asked in public. What do I do to obtain eternal life? This, is, this used to be a matter of public discourse. What happens to us when we die? How can we be sure of heaven? How can we avoid hell? How can we have confidence? That's not a, that's not a subject for public discourse anymore. That's a cultural taboo in America. You can't talk about that on a talk show. You can't bring that up in a public meeting. You can't broach that subject in halls of government. In my grandfather's day, it was taboo to talk about what a man and woman did when they were alone, if they were attracted to one another. It was certainly taboo to talk about what a man and a man might do if they were attracted to each other. You couldn't even talk about talking about that subject. Now everything's changed. Now the taboos are different. Now you talk about those kinds of things, those kinds of sexual things, in in dirty, little, smutty, non-biblical ways. Innuendo sometimes. Graphically and overtly sometimes. But all the time. All the time. But don't talk about Jesus. Don't, Don't talk about why Jesus died. Don't talk about death and what happens after death. Don't ever talk about that. That's a taboo. We can't do that anymore. But in the first century, among the Jews, so it's quite an important question. 
And the young man broaches the question with Jesus, and he gives him an amazing response, and the response becomes more and more and more and more amazing. The first thing he says is, why are you asking me? That's an important thing to establish. Who do we apply to to get this question answered? Who speaks authoritatively to answer this question? Who really knows? How could anybody know about anything that was eternal? We don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, much less whether we can keep something throughout all eternity. You have to be infinite to see the end of eternity. And there's one person who lived in a human body who was infinite and who could see both sides of eternity, eternity past and eternity future, even though logically this this doesn't work. There's only one person who ever walked on this planet who was before eternity past and who will be after eternity future. And this is the man to whom the questioner applied. You realize that there were critics in the 19th century who tried to use this answer to say that Jesus never claimed to be God because he said only God is good. There's some who said he didn't even claim to be good. But no, 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 that's not what he's doing. He's trying to get the young man to clarify his thinking and understand why he would ask Jesus, why he would trust Jesus to be authoritative on such a question. So the first thing he's trying to get him to think about is, think about who I am. Think about how I could know the answer to this question. And to also understand that the one who is great enough to answer the question is also the one who is exclusively and solely good. Now, now look. He says, if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. Okay. Now, if you're a Protestant, and if you understand what it is to be a Protestant, especially if you're Reformed, you've got to be shocked. This is the first shocking thing. I don't know if you've ever had any evangelism training. I don't know if you've ever gone out to share your faith. But what if you're with somebody as a partner sharing your faith and somebody says, uh, your, your partner says to whoever the candidate is or whoever the maybe lost person is, your partner says, well, you know, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be saved, you've got to keep the commandments. What do you do when you get your partner alone? What do you say to him? You say, man, you've got to go back to first grade. No, no, no. First grade is too advanced for you. You've got to go to kindergarten. That's an outrageous answer. What a thing to tell a lost person. But that's what Jesus said. And we've got to deal with it. Here's one reason we know Jesus is the Son of God. He's always counterintuitive. We, we never used that phrase, counterintuitive, 25 years ago. All, all that means is whatever we would intuitively expect, Jesus does the opposite. Uh, he, doesn't, he never does what we expect. Um, sometimes that's because Jesus always speaks to thoughts. We expect him to speak to words. The last time I stood in this pulpit was, I think, about eight or nine years ago, 
And I taught you from John 2, not the first part of John 2, but the second part of John, uh, not the second part, but the first part. In the second part of John 2, after he cleanses the temple, the Jewish authorities say to him, what authority do you have to do these things? And he responds, you tear this temple down, but in three days I'll rebuild it. What? What kind of response is that? Why did he say that? I'll tell you why he said it. Because he was speaking to their thoughts. With their words, they said, what authority do you have to take this kind of action here in the temple precincts? But their thoughts, in their thoughts, they were saying, we're going to kill you for this. And so he responds, you can kill me if you want to. As a matter of fact, I'm going to let you kill me one day. But in three days, I'm going to rise again. But it's totally unexpected. He meets a man who has every advantage of birth in John 3, and he says to that man, the only thing you need is to be somebody else. The only thing you need is a different kind of birth. He meets a woman who would expect utter social rejection and condemnation from the Jews, and he says, could you share your drink with me? Would you be willing to drink out of the same cup with me? Totally counterintuitive. He meets a man who's blind, so what does he do? He makes spittle uh, and and mud, and he rubs the mud in the blind person's eye. That's pretty counterintuitive. That's not what I would expect to help somebody see. And if we believe the Reformed solas, if we believe it's grace alone and faith alone, and as we sang from Ephesians 2 a while ago, that there's nothing we can do. We don't expect the Lord Jesus Christ to say, if you want to go to heaven, keep the commandments. So how do we explain it? Well, you know, one reason we train people in evangelism is because we can't trust everybody in evangelism. You get a few people who come to evangelistic class, you've got no idea what they're going to say. So you got to get them saying the same thing. you got to be sure the things they say are biblical. And so I may say 95% of the time, have you ever heard of the four spiritual laws? Or do you know for sure if you were to die today that you would go to heaven? Actually, I, be- I begin where I live my evangelistic approach with the same question 100% of the time. I say, can you speak English? But Jesus never does it the same. Jesus never dispenses generic medication spiritually. It's all specifically tailored for the spiritual sickness that he's dealing with. And he diagnoses the spiritual sickness of the person that he's with And after he gives an infallible, accurate diagnosis, he begins to dispense the medicine. He initiates the therapeutic action. And here's what happens. A young man comes to him believing that he can do something for God that will put God in his debt and God will have to give him eternal life because he's satisfied some standard that God has said, and now he's deserving and earning his eternal life. And what Jesus says is, you want to walk down that path? I'll walk down that path with you. Let's go down that path together. Let's see where that path leads. 
Okay, keep the commandments. The young man says, which one? Now, I think some of you know that there are 613 commandments. There's not just 10. There's 613 commandments. And what the kid wants is he wants to make the smallest possible investment to get the greatest possible return. He doesn't want to do anything for God that he doesn't have to. He wants in. Get me in. What do I have to do to get in? Don't tell me anything else. I don't want to do anything extra. Which ones? So, and I think many of you Bible students know that theologians have long divided the Ten Commandments into two tables, two tablets. The first table has to do with our vertical responsibilities. Summarized in Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second table involves our horizontal responsibilities. Summarized in Leviticus 19.18, you will love your neighbor as yourself. And it's very instructive that every commandment that the Lord names is from the second table. Every commandment the Lord names has to do with our responsibility to our neighbor, our horizontal commitments. And the young man says in verse 20, all these things I've kept. As a matter of fact, Mark and Luke tell us that he says, all these things I've kept from my youth. Well, I've done all this since I was a kid. This is child's play. The commandments of God, I've been keeping the commandments of God all my life. This is child's play. A child could do this. And the young man's overestimation of himself. You know, one way you can tell that you're growing as a Christian? You will be more and more charitable in your spiritual estimation of other people. And you will become more and more severe in your estimation of yourself. That's one way you can tell. And with stupefying arrogance, he responds, I've always kept all the commandments of God all my life since I was a little child. Now, here's the interesting thing. The first thing he, his first response was to break one of the Ten Commandments. Did you notice that? The first thing he does after Jesus tells him is he breaks one of the Ten Commandments. Which one? Tell me. Then Good, the Ninth Commandment. He broke the ninth commandment. He bore false witness. He claimed to have kept all 613 commandments of God all his life. Let me ask you a question. Who of you have ever loved the Lord your God with all your heart? Who of you have ever loved the Lord your God with all your mind? Who of you have ever loved the Lord your God with all, all your strength? Heart, soul, mind, strength. Who has ever kept 25% of the most important commandment? Who among us have ever kept 25% of one commandment, and yet this young man says, I've kept all the commandments all the time, 100%. He's lying. He's bearing false witness. But you see, here's the masterstroke. This is the way the Son of God does evangelism. Jesus doesn't just quote from the Ten Commandments. He quotes from the summary 
of the second table. Leviticus 19.18. He throws that in. That's why I'm teaching from Matthew's version of the events. He also says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's why that's important. The young man said, I've, I've already done this, verse 20. What am I still lacking? In verse 21, the Lord says, well, if you wish to be complete, sell your, sell your possessions, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. Now, if I love my neighbor as much as I love myself, it doesn't matter who has my money, does it? It doesn't matter who has my car. It doesn't matter who has my credit cards. It doesn't matter who owns my house. It doesn't matter who gets my pension, who collects my salary, who has my investment. It doesn't make any difference because I love my neighbor just as much as I love myself. It's a, it's a matter of total indifference. If I love John just as love, much as I love myself. I can throw John. John, you, you just got ready. You really thought I was going to give that to you. I can, I can toss John. I can toss John my billfold and say, John, you just take this because I love John just as much as I love me. So what difference does it make? So the Lord said, well, it won't be any problem for you to sell your possessions, give to the poor, you shall have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Now, let me just say this. This is a whole different subject. Who does Jesus require this of? What does this mean about our possessions? I'm not going to go there. I don't have time to go there. That's really a pastoral responsibility to go there, not a visitor's responsibility to go there. Um, I will say this, though. We'll get this in. Do you have to give up anything to be saved? No. You've just got to receive somebody who died for you because you couldn't give up stuff, because you can't give up stuff, because you're too selfish. That's why Jesus died, because we can't give our anything over to God, much less everything. Now, once we know the Lord, what does it take to be his disciple? Then do we have to give up something? Well, yeah. Well, what do, what do I have to give up? Well, the first thing you have to give up is the thing that you won't give up. You can name it. I won't name it. If you want to follow Jesus, the first thing you have to give up is the thing you won't give up. That's a different sermon, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave that right there. But I'll say, Let me just say this one other thing. I don't view this as a great requirement. I view this as a great offer. You realize, don't you, that when he went to the region of the Gadarenes and he delivered the man full of legion, all those demons. You remember what the man said to him? He said, can I go follow you? And the Lord said, no, you can't. Wow. Why wouldn't he let him? Well, one reason he wouldn't let him is because you've got to stay here and be a trophy of grace. You've got to stay here and be a missionary among a people who care more about pigs than human beings. Because if you come and go with me, 30 days later, they'll say it never happened. And there'll be different versions of what I did, and nobody will know which version to believe. So you're going to stay here so that all of your life, these people are going to know who I am and what I did for you. But I don't view this as a great requirement. I view it as a great offer because what the Lord was saying, give your assets away and let 
Come and live with me. And let me take care of your responsibilities. You know, maybe I'm overestimating you. I would say that probably none of us have the faith to give away everything and give the proceeds to the poor. Probably none of us do in this room, no matter how much we might think of ourselves spiritually. But you know what? I believe that there are people in this congregation that if you knew for sure that you could live with Jesus, however many days were left in his public ministry, that you, can go with, you could go and live with him if you gave everything else away. I believe there are a lot of people in front of me who do that. And I believe that nearly all of you would want to be able to do that, if you put it that way. You see, it's not just enriching the poor. We don't care that much about the poor. That's just a fact. But it's getting to live with Jesus. Getting to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. There have been two economic contractions since I left Memphis, one in 2008, one in 2010. I don't have very much, but in 2008, I lost 40%. And I was feeling a little bit sorry for myself, and I was, I was uh, thinking, you know, if I had any sense, if I had any business acumen, if I knew how to protect assets, that wouldn't happen. And I was very actually encouraged because I was with some very, 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 very wealthy people at a meal, and the wife confided in me. She leaned over to me, and she said, she said we lost 40%. And I thought, well, maybe if I was very clever, I would have still lost 40%. Even if I'd known what to do, maybe I would have lost 40%. Now, here's a question. Who do you want to protect your assets? Do you want to protect your assets, or do you want Jesus to protect your assets? Who do you want to be responsible for your bills and your commitments? Do you want to be responsible for them, or do you want Jesus to be responsible for them? See what a great offer this is? You come and live with me. You're not going to need all of that stuff because I'm going to take care of everything. And by the way, that's what eternity is, isn't it? How many of your assets are you going to take into eternity? This is just a little preliminary offer. All he's saying is, we can start today if you want to. We can start right now. But the reason he challenged him on it, I'm convinced, is because he boasted that he cared just as much about his neighbor as he cared about himself. Now, when the young man hears this in verse 22, he goes away sorrowful because he owned much property. Then the Lord says in verse 23, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's even easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Let me ask you a question. Many of you have been studying the Bible for a long time. I want to know how many of you have ever heard that there's a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of a needle that a camel cannot get through unless it gets the burden off its back and unless it kneels. If anybody here ever heard that, raise your hand if you've heard that. Yeah, it's not true. It's not true. We want to believe that because we don't want to offend the rich. We'd like to, hey, I'm a missionary. I don't want to offend the rich. I want to go to lunch with them. And we sort of try to get off the hook on this one, don't we? But it's not true. 
Now, here's the key. And by the way, that's the second shocking thing. That's the thing that's shocking to a first century Jew. The first thing is when he says, keep the commandments, because we believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. Why on earth would he say, keep the commandments? He said it to get him lost. You got to get somebody lost before you get them saved. This was the law work. He slayed him with the law. What he showed him is, listen, son, not only can you not keep all the commandments, you can't even talk without breaking the ninth commandment, and you can't even keep one commandment. I'll give you one commandment. Sell your possessions, give the proceeds away, come follow me. You can't even do one thing, much less everything. He's getting them lost. But the second shocking thing, the thing that was shocking to the first century Jew, the Jews thought wealth was a reward, that wealth showed God's approval. You can misconstrue some Old Testament verses and come up with that interpretation. If you take them out of context, and if you don't look at the whole Old Testament, you can draw that conclusion. And so what Jesus said was, you know, it's just the opposite of what you think. Riches don't show that a man is already right with God. Riches make it much harder for a man to become right with God because riches get in the way. Here's the key, though. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished. See, they were shocked because it was a shocking thing for a first century Jew to hear. And they said, here's the key, then who can be saved? They don't say, how can a rich man be saved? They say, how can anybody be saved? You see? Who can be saved? How can anybody be saved? And here's what Jesus says. He says, It's impossible in the strength of man alone. You know what that is? That's Calvinism. That's the Reformed faith. Not only does this passage not repudiate Protestant theology, this passage establishes Protestant theology. It's impossible for a human being to be saved. It's impossible for a lost sinner to be saved. There has to be divine intervention. With God, all things are possible. I can't keep all the law. I can't even keep any of the law. I can't obey all of God's commandments. I can't even obey one of God's commandments unless God helps me. You see what's happening here? You see that for each one of us, we are such wretched sinners that we can't, we can't satisfy the requirement of God. We can congratulate ourselves. We can feel better about ourselves, if, especially if we're doing well economically like this young man was. One thing I've found is that it's almost impossible to make a man believe he could be displeasing to God if he has a lot of money and he's making more money. I found it impossible. I'm not just going to pick on businessmen. Let me pick on ministers. It's impossible to convince a minister that he may be doing things that are not pleasing to the Lord if he's got a big church and his church is growing. But you know, that's not the gauge. That's not the measure. This is the measure. This is the measure. It's impossible for you 
and I as sinners to meet God's requirement that we might obtain eternal life. So how are we going to have life? We're going to have life because someone gave up his life that we might share his life. Our only hope is to plead five wounds, two in the hands, two in the feet, and one in the side. Five wounds and the blood which flowed therefrom. 